0: Well, good evening, everybody. What an extraordinary pleasure to see the place packed, and I'm not surprised at all that it is. Uh, This, as you know, is the second Charles Perkins Centre Array. And as always, before we commence proceedings, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which um, this building is built. That's the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past and present, uh, and all other Aboriginal peoples present with us uh, this evening. Now, it's an absolute delight this evening um, to welcome Professor Paul Davies to give the second Charles Perkins Centre Oration. And Paul is well known to us. He's been here before. Um, He is Australian, so he's certainly been to Australia many, many times, comes from here, but he's been to the Charles Perkins Centre before, Although he just tells me the most recent lecture he gave in Sydney was at the Sydney Opera House. So he's moving up in terms of grandeur and architectural distinguishment. So, in this oration, Professor Davies is going to present his work on the evolutionary roots of cancer. And you'll know that he, by origin, and I'll tell you more about him in a minute, is a physicist. And that of its very self exemplifies what the Charles Perkins Centre is set up to do, to bring people from different disciplines to come together to transmit and to share their ideas and to stimulate new ones, and along the way to overturn prevailing dogmas to come up with stimulating new ideas that really get things moving. Paul is all of those things packed into one person. Uh, He's a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist and author. He's the Regents Professor and Director of the Beyond Centre for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University, which is a little bit like here in some respects, although with uh, with less of a health focus than the Charles Perkins Centre. And there he also runs a major cancer research programme as the Principal Investigator Centre for Convergence of Physical Science and Cancer Biology. He's a visiting Professor of Bioengineering at Imperial College London and a visiting Professorial Fellow here in Sydney at the um, University of New South Wales. He's held academic appointments in Cambridge, London and Newcastle before moving to Australia in 1990 where he helped create the Australian Centre for Astrobiology. Um, his research has ranged from the origin of the universe to the origin of life and the nature of time and His most recent book is the eerie silence. Are we alone in the universe published in 2010? He was awarded amongst many other prizes the Templeton prize for his work on the deeper meaning of science and among other awards and honors of the Royal Society Faraday Prize the Kelvin medal and the Robinson cosmology prize in 2007, he was named a member of the Order of Australia, and in 2011, he was presented with the Bic- Bicentenary Medal of Chile. And he's heading off to Chile again um, before too long and tells me he spends uh, a period there each year going to conferences. And to top it all off, uh, the asteroid 19920 g was renamed 6870 Paul Davies, in recognition of his work on cosmic impacts. So, an extraordinary man. It's going to be a challenging and interesting lecture, and I would like to invite Professor Davies to the Leighton to deliver it. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Steve, for that fulsome introduction. My asteroid is not going to hit the Earth. So uh, don't blame me when the next one strikes. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back in Sydney and uh, to deliver this uh, oration, of the second I uh, gather. Uh, and I'd like to know before I start if there are any students in the audience. Raise your hand. That's one. Uh, feel free to come forward if uh, if you wish. Uh, so uh, as uh, you've just been informed uh, by background. I'm a theoretical physicist and cosmologist, and you might wonder uh, do I have any authority to stand before you today and discuss the subject of cancer? Uh, Well, not having authority has never been known to stop. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, I'm going to uh, give you my take on this uh, subject. I should say cancer touches every family on the planet, Uh, and so it's a concern to us all. Uh, but what I didn't realize until I embarked on this uh, journey that I'm going to tell you about is just how scientifically fascinating the subject is as well. So I hope to combine something of the human angle of cancer and the clinical and medical aspects with the fundamental research that I've been engaged in. So uh, the story began, uh, for me really, uh, 44 years ago this month when President Richard Nixon famously declared war on cancer. Uh, And the sign of the National Cancer Act brought into being the uh, NCR, the uh, uh, the, um, National Cancer Institute uh, in Washington. And at that time, Nixon and uh, his uh, scientific advisors were very happy about the prospects or tackling cancer because, after all, uh, science had solved the problem of infectious diseases, made uh, dramatic advances uh, with drugs against uh, all of the major killers. And it seemed very reasonable to suppose, then, uh, that a, a, a typical scientific uh, error might reduce cancer incidence, cancer mortality, uh, by uh, within five years, which is what Nixon predicted. Uh, so, looking back on that, that seems sort of remarkably upbeat. Uh, now, cancer research doesn't come cheap. The current budget of the NCI is about 5 billion uh, US dollars, uh, and other government departments spend uh, a little over 2 billion dollars, and this is taxpayer money. And in addition to that, there are the charities. Uh, so, uh, this, uh, this, is a big, this is big business uh, by any standards. Uh, sometimes I call it a cancer-industrial complex. I mean, it's a major, major undertaking. And other countries as well, of course, contribute relatively the same amount. So over this 44 years, that 100 billion dollars has been... Uh, uh, maybe nearly a trillion dollars has been spent just in the United States. Uh, and so how are we doing for all that money? Well, uh, these are the figures uh, uh, prepared by the American Cancer Society uh, and what they're doing is comparing uh, major killers like heart disease, uh, Cerebin, I can pronounce it, uh, <laughs> and the uh, And what you'll see is, of course, what I was saying, dramatic progress against these infectious diseases. Uh, but cancer remains stubbornly uh, the same as it was some decades ago in terms of the mortality rate. Uh, but the bad news is because these things are under control, people are living longer, that the incidence of cancer uh, is going up uh, relentlessly. And so here are some figures from 2014, one and two thirds, million uh, will be diagnosed with cancer, and a uh, half million deaths uh, in 2014. And so uh, worldwide, uh, cancer uh, takes a huge toll, and depending on how you find it, it's uh, probably now the, the number one killer. We tend to think of it as being uh, a disease of uh, the athroids, but that isn't true. Uh, it's um, a major problem even in uh, uh, developing countries as well. Added to this uh, human tragedy of uh, accelerating uh, cancer incidence and very little change in mortality is the enormous cost associated not just with research, but with the treatment. Uh, Here are some typical cancer drugs. I'm grateful to my colleague, George Pest, at Arizona State University, for providing these. And uh, you see that cancer drugs can easily be $100,000 a year, uh, and these costs are rising all the time. Uh, And so, uh, given the large number of people who are going to be demanding in the future, be demanding uh, cancer drugs and cancer treatment, If we go the chemotherapy route, then it's clear that healthcare systems, certainly in the United States, but I'm sure around the world, uh, are simply not uh, not going to be able to cope. This is not sustainable. Um, And so, uh, what are we going to do? Well, uh, I I started on this subject by asking why is it that one of the most intensively studied phenomena in biology, probably the most intensively studied, Is so poorly understood. Uh, And I come to the conclusion that maybe progress is so slow against cancer because we're thinking about the problem the wrong way. And the question is can we do that? Can we think about it differently? Uh, And uh, I became involved in this uh, about nine years ago on the strength of a phone call from the then deputy director of the National Cancer Institute. Uh, Anna Barker, and uh, she basically said uh, something along these lines, uh, you don't know me, uh, but I'm deputy director of the NCI. Uh, we're spending $5 billion a year uh, on hands research, and we're not really getting anywhere. Uh, we're stuck, and we think uh, uh, it's a good idea if we uh, ask scientists from other disciplines to lend a hand, and can physicists help? Uh, <laughs> Well, who was I to say that? <laughs> uh, I always think physicists can help. Uh, and so uh, I, I responded that, well, I don't, I'm sure the physicists can help, but uh, I don't think about answers. answer. She said, that's the whole idea. We want to bring in people from outside the discipline to take a fresh look, uh, to stand back and look at, uh, across the whole field of research and connect the dots in novel ways. And so I took that seriously. Uh, I will tell you in a moment about some of the other centers. Uh, but I took that seriously and what I going to uh, tell you this afternoon is the outcome of my attempting to stand back and look at cancer research and connect the dots in another way. Uh, now, uh, two or three years after this initial encounter, the uh, in NCI I decided to create a special program for physical science and oncology and I established 12 centers around the country. And I ran a world at Alexander Arizona State University and we were partnered with uh, the with Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in and the Mayo Clinic uh, in Scotland, And that's the Centre for Convergence of Physical Science and Cancer Biology. Uh, that was a, a five year funding programme. The funding came to me end this year, is that uh, right after this uh, PSOC exercise, uh, which we we'll see, uh, I don't want to go into much on the politics, um, but I'll uh, just mention that we this was a big enterprise of ASU. We had six uh, oncologists, all kinds of biologists, five physicists, physical chemists, astrophysiologists, three engineers, one person education average, of about 50 and about 15 students. If you want to make more, this is the website to go to. And there were 12 of these uh, around the country, and this is the this is Arizona here, so that's the one that I was running. Um, and uh, collectively, these things were networked, and they had a budget. Of about $35 million a year uh, to fund this in five years. Uh, so that's the, uh, the background. Now, um, I said that I took seriously the request that we should think about cancer in novel ways. Now, as a theoretical physicist uh, and as a director of the Beyond Centre for Fundamental Concepts and Science, I like to dwell on the foundational questions in science, the conceptual foundations, uh, and to ask really basic questions, and also when I see a subject that seems to make a lot of assumptions, question those assumptions and ask for justification. Uh, and so I've adopted that approach in uh, tackling the cancer problem, and in particular, why it seems to me it was important why well, I should be doing it, is to try to study cancer as a biological phenomenon. Not as a disease to be cured, because that's the main occupation of people in cancer itself. but what is it as a biological phenomenon? What is cancer? Why does it exist in the first place? And how do we fit it into the great sweep of the story of life on Earth? And one of the silly disputes that, uh, that, that I get into uh, is is cancer a simple disease or a complex disease? And uh, if you're uh, clinician, you see the complexity. You're dealing with patients all the time, and like no two patients are the same. And so it seems like you're dealing with a very complex disease, in fact, whole stem diseases, which stem cancer. So, um, so uh, clinicians see the complexity. I'm a theoretical physicist, so I stand back and look at the whole landscape, and I see the simplicity, because it's my job to look for underlying patterns. Uh, and it seems to me that. Uh, Viewed through my eyes, cancer is a very systematic disease. Uh, It uh, it behaves uh, in in an overall very predictable manner. So, when I see something in nature that's systematic, I feel that there's a story behind that. It just isn't an accident that cancer happens to be systematic. So, I think there's a backstory going on here about cancer. It's one that's been largely ignored. I won't say overlooked, I, I think it's been appreciated by some cancer researchers, but largely ignored, uh, and that is the deep evolutionary roots of cancer its place in the great story life on earth. i going to tell you about that, and then uh, towards the end of the lecture, I will give you a sort of forward glimpse of where I think cancer biology is going from here on. Now, uh, the the term that I've adopted along with my collaborators is that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. So we're not going to understand cancer unless we look at its evolutionary roots. So the essence of what I'm going to tell you is that cancer is a window of the past. When we look at cancer, uh, in some aspects of the cancer phenotype, uh, what we are witnessing is life as it was, and also the cancer genotype, the genes that drive cancer. Uh, I'm going to tell you are generally very ancient genes. Now, I think that's been and understood i appreciated in cancer biology for a long while. But what we wanted to do was to nuance that story uh, and, uh, and develop something complicated. Because as a theoretical physicist, I'm very comfortable if I can see some equations and uh, some graphs and see some hard data. Uh, I want to go beyond just the ideas. And so uh, that's what we, um, we set about to do. And I'm going to tell you, well, I keep saying we, who the collaborators are at the end of the lecture. Uh, so the first thing is uh, why uh what we think are cancers or modern disease? Uh, it's just something to do with a modern lifestyle. That's not true, it's a very ancient disease. How do we know that? Well, uh, it pervades the multicellular world. All mammals, with the possible exception of the an ancient mole rat, uh, birds, fish, reptiles, even plants, uh, have cancer or cancer-like phenomena. And uh by
0: ASU colleagues, Carlo Mendy,
1: and Athena activists, recently published a paper looking at cancer across really every uh, multicellular lineage. This is their paper it just came out uh, recently, and uh, they've kind of provided these pictures. So here we see uh, corals with cancer, uh, fungi with cancer, sponges, even the lowly hydra, which has to suit to subtype uh, can get cancer. And there's one with an Arizona flavor <laughs> to it, which a Samara cactus with uh, cancer. Uh, and so, in effect, when they look at, you know, the great of so light, like, all of these things, and then they look at cancer and cancer night phenomena among these. And so some of them they haven't found yet. Uh, but basically, uh, if you have something so sort widely of distributed, in multicellular life, it suggests an origin that goes back to the... Common answers that, hundreds of uh, millions or even uh, billions of years ago. <laughs> so, before I launch into that, uh, we all use this term cancer rather loosely, and our most people have uh, an idea of what it is. Uh, stuff grows in you, it's unwelcome, uh, it's, uh, it's often fatal, uh, uh, and that's depends based on it. But uh, just to remind you what the basic story of cancer is, it uh, in a particular organ will start to proliferate uncontrollably. Uh, that in itself it, it isn't necessarily a disaster. Uh, but these uh, cells have a tendency to then spread around the body and colonise remote organs, the uh, so-called uh, metastatic process. Uh, when I first began to think about it, I thought, well, this is really extraordinary. Why would a cell that lives in the kidney want to make a home in the blood? Or a cell that lives in the prostate want to make a home in the brain? It's extraordinary. but how do they get there? They get there by travelling through the lymphatic system or the bloodstream. It's a long, complicated, hazardous journey. They have to leave the primary tumor. Uh, they will travel often in convoy uh, on collagen fibers, and uh, there's a horrible term called intravasation. They uh, squeeze their way through the blood vessels and then they get swept on in raging soil. Uh, and then they've got to get out again, and uh, these cells are also interesting. Physics going on, different mechanical and discoelastic properties, part of what we were studying in our the center. They roll along the insides of the blood vessels and then they extramase it, they batter their way up, uh, and then they're in a ton that's saying uh, that they should be stuck. Uh, and yet uh, they're able to, uh, at least in make a hand there and start up a new existence. So, uh, what I understand in the United States is a little bit like the early colonists. Uh, they went over in, uh, in uh, ships to the east coast of the United States, so they built forts and things were very desperate for them for a while, and they sort of accumulated a critical mass. And then they bribed the, uh, the local uh, uh, American Indians and reached a uh, point where they burst out of the, best in the country. So cancer you know, is a little bit like that. It's in it, uh, remote organs and often remained uh, organs. Years or even decades, uh, but will reach uh, a critical point at which uh, it then bursts out. Uh, and so, um, uh, but part of, of our, our brief with these cross centers was to understand that metastatic process uh, as a physical process because these are physical, physical objects. And um, it's fascinating to wonder whether that process can be uh, controlled, mitigated in some way. Uh, or even in the process of the bursting out, you know, uh, uh, making a home with a remote organs. Whether uh, they're making it the controlled in some way, I'm manipulating physical parameters. But that's a different story, I don't have time to get into it. Um, so, uh, more precisely, cancer manifests a number of so called hallmarks. This is a famous paper uh, by Hannah uh, uh, Hannah Weinberg. And I'm not going to go through these hallmarks one by one. I've uh, got a couple that I should mention. Uh, one is resisting cell death. So all, uh, come on, a man, all cells in the body uh, are programmed to uh, commit suicide, and uh, they turn that off. Um, they organize their own their blood supply. This is inducing angiogenesis. Uh, and there's all sorts of other things. So in other words, once cancer gets underway, it's deploying at least half a dozen, sometimes more, modalities uh, in the same population of cells, called the neurofasms. Of the population of these cells. Uh, it's got all these properties co present in a neoplasm. Uh, and they all appear in a period of weeks or months or, or years within the host organism. All of these, these properties. And the same with different cancers, and the same with different individuals, and the same with different species. There's something very systematic that these whole arts of cancer are uh, brought forth uh, in all of these cases. Uh, and that does indicate something very systematic going like on. Um, the, um, uh, there, there are more hallmarks so but I, I don't have time to get into all that. So anyway, I, so my uh, point of view is that, that the, um, so this is a systematic process. And sometimes I've used to have pre-programmed you know, that, that all cells come pre-loaded with a sort of cancer subroutine uh, that is uh, sitting there. All cells are capable. So it's, it's there as an existing modality. And one thing I should mention is that all those hallmarks of cancer are also present in the body uh, in, in healthy cells. That is, cancer never invents anything new, it just uh, commandeers or hijacks existing biological modalities, stuff that life does anyway. So cancer is, uh, is just inappropriately accessing already existing biological modality. Uh, so the story uh, really goes back uh, for me. Well, I have measured a long time, but how long? How far back? Um, well, I can tell you that some, some of most of what I think is relevant to cancer goes back to the dawn of multicellularity, which was about one and a half billion years ago. Multicellularity evolved many times actually, but between about one and a half and a billion years ago. Uh, but some of the uh, the story of cancer goes back even before that, uh, back to eukaryogenesis, the origin of eukaryotic cells, uh, complex cells, were out, and even before that. So, we'll unpack that story as I go. Um, so, uh, in the beginning, there were just uh, uh, bacteria and archaea, single cell organisms. And single cell organisms have one imperative enemy, which is replicate, replicate, replicate. That's what they do. That And Life was probably having doing that for two billion years at least. Um, uh, uh, But then, one and a half billion years ago, uh, something probably happened. Some cells formed communities or collectives and decided. uh, So, I think we could say that bacteria are in a sense immortal. They just keep dividing and going on. Some. um, uh, cells form colonies and they outsource their immortality to specialized germ cells, uh, the, the egg cells and the sperm cells. Uh, they carry the immortality through subsequent generations. And the price for the collective pay, the, uh, the cells that belong-, belong to the collective pay, of the so called somatic cells, uh, is programmed cell death. I mentioned that. It's called apoptosis. So the deal was this, it, it was ancient contract said, uh, you the germ cells, with all the get the genes through uh, into subsequent generations, we, the somatic cells, will gain the benefit from that, and in return, we will work for you, we will provide a vehicle called the body, uh, and uh, that um, when you're done, we will, you know, each, each the body will die. Uh, and so that's the contract. It's a very different way to a very different logic of doing like, that. This is, this is a very straightforward logic, the logic of having a collective uh, is quite different but they, it, it, of course, I we get here into the mathematics of natural selection but there are good reasons why selection can operate uh, in favour of a collective if the certain are up, which a uh strong uh, selection pressure in favour of anti cellularity because it has to be more honest. Uh, And so the view then that is that here you go, the somatic cells die, they die, uh, the germ cells uh, go on, uh, and they're in a sense immortal. Now, cancer, I reckon to tell you, is a disease of bodies. Bodies haven't always existed. Uh, I'm telling you that the the origin of bodies goes back about one and a half billion years, maybe not quite that long. Uh, so, it makes sense to talk about cancer only in relation to bodies. And what's happening, when you, when you have this sort of um, collective uh, organization, it's always a bargain on what So, uh, human society forms a collective, uh, and uh, we, we find that there are advantages to doing that. Um, but that's all about what you could, You could be a thief or a liar, for example. Uh, and so, um, why don't you do that? Uh, so uh, if you're a thief or a liar, you're gaining an advantage from belonging to society but you're breaking uh, something for yourself, uh, unfairly. Uh, so you get around that with uh, and laws the police force and government and so on. Uh, well, biology does the same. In order to police the contracts between individual somatic cells and the connected, uh, there's male on of regulatory control. And those regulations become ever more complex over the last billion years or so. Uh, And cancer represents a breakdown of that ancient contract. Something goes wrong with the regulation, and uh, then uh, the cell reverts uh, back to this um, earlier phase of existence. So, cancer, then, in this sentence, is a breakdown of this ancient contract, a throwback, if you like, uh, an sort of ancestral phenotype, that's called an atomism. An atomism is where uh, normally is understood where uh, an individual is born with an organ uh, that is uh, um, from the distant past, um, it, I don't want to go too far down as well, but for example, uh, occasionally human children are born with tails, and that's because really that is just a long time, they get have tails, and the, uh, the uh, pathways for uh, developing a tail in the embryo that exist inside of this, and so can be expressed if something goes wrong with the regulations. So it's an So we're saying that cancer is something like an activism. Um, the, the big point of departure, I think, between what, I'm, what I think about cancer and the mainstream cancer community is that uh, in the... The standard theory of cancer, called the somatic mutation theory of cancer, is that accumulated genetic defects in the genome, genomic defects, Uh, reach a a certain point where cancer begins, so the cancer is driven by those defects, It's the genetic theory of cancer, the cancer is a product of defective genomes. I agree that it's, it's, it's undoubtedly true that cancer genomes are a mess, they are clearly uh, defective. Uh, but I agree with it's on it, because to me, uh, the cancer is a response to an external threat or insult. It's not a creation of the threat or insult, it's a carcinogen by the genome. The cancer is really a response to the threat of the carcinogen, not so much the creation of the carcinogen. So, one way of bringing it is that in organized tissues, to the cells behave like a army. Uh, but in cancer, they default back not quite to their single cell domain, because there's still some collective organization involved in the neoplasm. Uh, but uh, to what my colleague Kim Busby says, uh, it's an ancient unicellular parasitic collective. Which I said, well, can I describe that as a street game? You see yourself, that's very appropriate. Um, another analogy that I like to use is that character is, in a sense, like say, safe mode on a computer. You're all be, uh, familiar with seeing this depressing uh, screen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this can happen with both the hardware or software inside so, uh, to your computer. And what it does, it just reverts back to its core functionality. And so when cells a found, the thing we call cancer, and those cells reverting back to that core ancient functionality, which is deeply protected. In that case, then the cell is dead. Uh, and so, it, it, in, a, in that sense, also, it's a reversal. Another analogy I like to use is that I've said that cells are preloaded with a cancer subject, and so that's overly simplistic. Uh, but it's certainly true that cells have the capacity to become cancer. And there's a lot of confusion in the cancer research community. Uh, which is the sort of thing that physicists are attuned to and that the use of the word cause. Uh, physicists seem to understand uh, causes uh, and the notion of the cause and effect and interaction and so on. Um, and you have to be really very careful because uh, a gene in a bubble is, is fine so long as something doesn't shatter the bottle. Uh, if something does shatter the bottle outcomes the gig. The cancer I think is like the gene. It executes its um, function With ruthless efficiency, and it does it very well. Uh, The the damage, I've said that the carcinogen or the stress or the stress or whatever it is that does the damage is not really driving the cancer. I think the damage releases the cancer, it doesn't drive the cancer. It's a subtle difference. Uh, And so um, this raises the question of why didn't natural selection. Eliminated that gene a long time ago because cancer is, of course, bad news. Why hasn't it, uh, the, why haven't the genes that are driving the cancer uh, been got rid of? And the answer is because they serve a useful purpose. It must be that if you can't get rid of these are ancient genes uh, that fulfill critical functions. For example, uh, here's one embryogenesis, embryo development. Uh, a lot of the genes present in cancer. Are also active in embryo development. That is, these genes, which normally are supposed to be silenced after uh, the full development of the embryo, are reawakened in cancer. And this has been known for a long time. So I was uh, astonished by like it was a really amazing fact 1907 on community development. Uh, and so I have been fond of berating my cancer research colleagues and saying, don't you realize how enormously significant this is? Uh, but um, as uh, the science writer George Johnson puts it, tumors are like the embryo's evil twin. <laughs> just mentioned in passing the work of Isaac uh, Cohen uh, at Harvard, uh, makes this explicit. He looks at uh, cancer and embryonic development, and here's just a quote from his uh, paper where dead by a set of genes were upregulated and turned on in most cancers, and we showed that this signature was active in early development. So the link then uh, is pretty clear between cancer biology, the evolutionary biology, and environmental biology, but these are three communities that don't normally talk to each other. Now maybe as a Charles Perkins Centre they can. Maybe this is just a sort of environment in which these sorts of groups uh, can sit down and have a coffee uh, and exchange ideas. I had to do it the hard way, I had to run workshops, and as part of my job, four workshops a year, bringing together Scientists from different disciplines, some who knew a lot about cancer, some who knew next And typically, we'll bring together groups like this, uh, put them in a room, 20 people at a time, bang their heads together, and say, uh, We need to come up with some new ideas. So that's been my approach brainstorming across the disciplines uh, and always questioning assumptions and the, the standard paradigm. Always saying, Are we showing the sure safe? So the outcome of uh, all this effort was this uh, atomistic theory of cancer, uh, and there are a number of papers that we published uh, on that. Uh, now theory, to a physicist, the, the word theory is useless unless you can make some sort of prediction. Uh, a, theory, a theory is not just a description of the world, it's not just-so it's got to be something that predicts something you didn't know before. And so uh, we made quite a number of uh, predictions based on that theory. I can't go into more. But one particular thing, the key thing, uh, as you have picked up, is that cancer genes have some sort of non trivial relationship with the age of the gene. So there's uh, a, a historical story to tell out here. Uh, and there's a, a field, an emerging field, a distracting type of phylostratigraphy. And what that really means is uh, looking at the uh, genes across many species are reconstructing the tree of life. In, in this way it's been done improved fairly. So I'm grateful again to my ASU colleagues for putting this together. They've been working like crazy on this. And they use these databases with these weird names like this. Um, and so they're, they're getting uh, genetic data from across all these species, and then his humans here and uh, looking at the major transitions in evolution. And here's one I mentioned, eukaryogenesis, that's the uh, formation of complex cells. What's it, Luca? That's the last universal common ancestor, in about 4 billion years. Uh, and the other big step, metazer, the formation of multicellular organisms. So that's the, the name of the game. You can get these huge databases. Uh, I understand the university is, i want to say a preeminent, uh, but certainly it will not be uh, in this final uh, One of my colleagues, uh, uh, severe Koenig, or a really book called *The Time of Life*. Maybe in you know. So this is all stuff that, uh, that my colleagues do. Um, um, where's the cancer in this? Well, they go to this uh, thing called Cosmic, which stands for stories It Cancer? They're a Catalog of somatic mutations in Cancer*. Striking thing. Uh, but these are uh, it's a catalog of, uh, of genes which are uh, mutated and are causal in cancer. Uh, that is that they sometimes can driver genes rather than passenger genes, known to have a causal function. So um, we've been looking at those, uh, and the first thing that my colleagues have done is to sort those genes in COSMIC into dominant and recessive. And I struggle because I, the last form of instruction I had in biology was in 1962. Um, and I, I keep struggling with the terms dominant and obsessive because it seems to be their backs of power. But anyway a uh, dominant gene is on one endeavor and a recessive gene is on, on two. Uh, and when you, uh, you sort them out like that, what you see is a clear uh, difference that the uh, dominant cancer genes are younger generally than the recessive cancer genes. And here are the ages, you see this in millions of years. So you see we've got these genes here round about the, the origin of multicellularity and then others the new carogenesis and others going right back to the original life. Uh, and so we have then uh, got excited about the fact that the, there's an age difference, as we always imagine, uh, and you know, what the these recessive actually do, what are they good for? Um, and uh, that's when my colleagues have used uh, uh, an algorithm called David, and I, try, I can't remember what David stands for, um, but it's not a person, it's some really fancy uh, you know, curated uh, computer, uh, uh, but um, it doesn't even have to see it, there. And, uh, anyway, David. So um, and they asked David what are these receptor cancer genes do. This, is, this work's on new, it's not published, so you're going to hear it for the first time. Uh, and what left out was what my colleague Kim Bassey uh, said was the biggest signature that she has ever come across. Uh, and the, uh, the, what David says is that these old recessive cancer genes are in racial processes related to DNA damage repair. all of these, except the white ones, are in one way or another dealing with uh, damage repair. You don't see this with the, with the dominant cancer genes. So it's not true of all cancer genes, the recessive ones, the, 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 the in business, the business of DNA damage repair. Now that immediately ran bell because one of the things you can do with this is You can take your favourite gene, maybe your favourite cancer gene, like Nick, um, they have all these hummingbirds, and then you can say, well, um, is that the same gene present across many species? Do we see it, you know, in triple flies? Do we see it in tadpoles? Do we see it in uh, grass, you know, across? Uh, and these are called homologs or orthologs uh, of the genes and then that can enable you to trace back to the common ancestor. So, when you look at the um, orthologs of the genes here, in bacteria, what you find is they're the same genes uh, that are associated with the true response and bacteria can do. They're stress. Uh, they can turn up their mutation rates. They deliberately mutate fast to try and find uh, a way around the problem. A mutated control. The very ancient response to an external threat or stress is an innovation in a mutation. Uh, and it's called adaptive evolution. And uh, uh, Susan Rosenberg at Ross University Texas is in this field. She's part of our wider circle of collaborators. Um, and one of the things that happens when bacteria do this. It's, uh, it, it has a very distinctive form of a trail of damage around the breakpoint. So, what's happening here is that um, if you have a double strand break, you know, a double helix, so you're breaking both strands, it's really bad news. Uh, then the cell has to repair that damage, and it's got a variety of ways of doing it. Um, if bacteria are stress, they choose to do it in a way uh, that introduces its high fidelity at the breakpoint, but it's very low fidelity. The region the so, it causes this kind of damage surrounding it. So, uh, it's a concomitant of the method of repairing DNA, uh, but it has these happy side effects of collateral damage, which is exactly what the bacteria can do when you take out the trouble. And that the same genes, uh, so often called the SOS response, and they're the same genes that we find in uh, the data spits out from this uh, cancer um, gene census uh, that we've been uh, so, symbolically, if this is DNA, we would expect in cancer to find where, it, where you see double strand breaks, uh, to see around about these breaks uh, a region of these single nucleotide variations uh, around them, uh, either side of the breaks. And, and we do. I mean, that's, we've been looking at the data, and showing up, we do find uh, this cascade damage out to many breaks on side of the double strand break. Um, and so this is an even more fundamental reason than neurogenesis, why well, you we can't get rid of the cancer genes, because uh, they're involved uh, in this very basic function ancient function of evolvability. when microorganisms are in trouble, they need to find a pathway around that, otherwise they wouldn't still be with us. And so natural selection is selected for evolvability. And this is one fundamental mechanism of evolvability. You can't get rid of it. Uh, and Cancer is the unfortunate side effect of, of having that. So let me just uh, give you. Because I've got this. There was supposed to be a clock here, but it's gone away. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to. Uh, there's some other stuff I can tell you about before I done. Um, so for the benefit of, uh, of the, uh, the biologists in the audience, this is the uh, summary of what I've just been saying in a bit more technical terms. So do fault. I can pronounce it, and it's general. Your problem is genes and humans, those involved in adaptive mutation in colour. for example, become specialized with trans synthesis, as a consequence of double breaks. Mutations in DNA repair genes don't knock out fully, but make it inefficient. They are not out fully, but then the cell the sky. Uh, a decrease in efficiency means DNA damage uh, is this trail of damage, it sits around longer, and, uh, uh, and that's something we that can detect and it means we would expect to see a co organization of that damage around the double-strand breaks, just like you do in E. coli, and we do. Okay, I've been talking about the recessive, the old recessive cancer genes, what about the, uh, the others? Uh, what about the young cancer genes, what do they do about? Um, well, you can also say So it, it turns out the young genes are uh, primarily involved in processes that affect development, I've already told you about that, and gene translocations. So, the gene translocation is where you get a chunk of chromosome, a chunk from one chromosome, a chunk from another chromosome, they swap over. The bacchanosome from the Philadelphia chromosome. Uh, so, this uh, sort of thing happens a lot in cancer. And so, the young cancer groups seem to be involved with those um, sort of processes. And young is a relative term. Uh, in the last billion years, let's say so. last 500 years, that's young, uh, in this uh, evolutionary game. Um, and uh, so again, in modern terms of the young dominant genes drive similar pathways important in development of genetic translocations, and young, and that's the dominant genes, the dominant genes drive those, and the recessive genes are renderings to those same pathways. It seems to be all the time that you have a process and a regulation of that process. Just like the immune system, you have uh, uh, killer cells, um, and then you have radio cells, and so it's a part of the balance of, uh, of biology that's right. Um, so the young, dominant cancer genes are like the accelerator cells to make the, the car go faster, and the recessive ones are on the bricks, and so they operate uh, together. So, um, so, what? You might be thinking, all well, this might be very interesting, a bit vague, and speculative. But uh, what about um, the sharp end of cancer treatment? What about in the clinic? Does it have any implications for therapy? I think it does have enormous implications for therapy across a wide range of topics that I don't have time uh, to tell you about, but there's one particular thing that comes immediately from what I've been saying, um, and that is that we will obviously want to avoid drugs that amplify this SOS response, this adaptive uh, um, evolutionary response. You don't want to make that worse because that makes the cancer more aggressive. A mass targeted therapies that actually hit the ancient evolutionary pathways. Uh, and one of the problems that we have had with standard cancer therapy is it targets the strenuous cancer. Typically, cancer drives or radiation uh, will target um, the proliferative ability of cancer. I so, that uh, cancer is where cells proliferate Uncontrollable, it's modified, 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 and the drugs are designed to attack that proliferative ability. But proliferation or replication is the most fundamental hallmark of all life. It goes back four billion years. So life has had four billion years to figure out how to combat any attacks on its proliferative ability. And when we hit cancer drugs with drugs that are designed to stop, Replication. You can be sure that those cells have got lots of ancient, uh, ancient uh, tricks, evolutionary tricks up their sleeves to combat what you're trying to do. And one of the depressing things about cancer therapy is precisely the evolution of therapeutic resistance uh, to one of the cocktail and drugs being administered. Uh, and so this is something that's recognised, of course, by all oncologists who patients patient on a regime of drugs and then. Uh, very often, uh, the cancer will um, uh, become resistant to those drugs and then uh, they change the drug and, and so on. Uh, but uh, it's always a moving
0: target. Uh, so, i have been talking about the deep
1: evolutionary which in cancer going back uh, billions of years. Uh, but there's another side of the evolutionary story, which is the Darwinian process taking place in the body of the host organism. The neoplasm is evolving and changing, uh, both in response to the body's differences and the terror that is being thrown at in will involve, um to try to uh, survive uh, in, the, in the way that Darwinian systems always do. So you have to take all of this into account uh, in in more uh, terror. Um, so the story that I so just to give a contemporary playback. uh So President Obama in the uh, and the topic of Islamic state. Uh, he wants to uh, contain and degrade the Islamic state. He doesn't want boots on the ground. He doesn't want another war. He doesn't want to, the to destroy the consulate in London. He says we don't want to speak, destroy ISIS. So um, uh, I'm saying that in the case of cancer, that we really want this uh, bomb strategy: uh, contain and degrade. Uh, and what this means is that uh, forgetting the C word, everyone should take on the idea of a pill or a Cancer go away, again general health is cancer cure. Uh, we don't need to cure cancer, we just need to manage it for long enough that it doesn't uh, kill patients or individuals patient like, who direct somebody else. Uh, and i give you a typical <coughs> example. Many cancers, as I've already said, remain dormant for the last decades. Uh, if we um, have a case, um, breast cancer is a classic example, a tumor is removed, uh, and after five years, the uh, patient is declared uh, cancer survivor. and um, they often tell you that to be cure, and then the cancer can come back after uh, ten years in a more aggressive form. What's the cancer been doing in those ten years? It's the same cancer, it's not that it's a bit second, a new cancer. Uh, this uh, the cancer will reappear in the remote organs. So clearly the cancer spread around the body is colonized those organs, but it's not progressed. It's remains stabilised in those remote tissues. Uh, either as individual cells, like spores in the desert, or, the bed, or as microscopic tumours with a turnover that is maintained in quasi-equilibrium by the body's own defences, the healthy tissues tissues, that contain the cancer, the immune system and so on, uh, then something destabilizes that and becomes a birth cell and reappears it from We organs. What it was that led to the period of dormancy, how that dormancy was maintained, and how it was destabilized. If we can extend that period of dormancy from, say, 10 years to 50 years, cancer would cease to be a problem, even if spring. spread. Okay, um, another couple of things before I wrap this up. I've been talking about mutated genes, because not all genes involved in cancer are some of them are simply upregulated when they shouldn't. Be. I mentioned the case of the embryonic genes that are reawakened really in cancer. And so, two or four years ago, when we were putting these ideas together, we made this slide which predicted that overexpressed genes ought to be significantly older than underexpressed genes, typically 15 years old a uh, few hundred million years old. And that was just, a, a, I can remember sitting down with my colleague, Charlie, uh, I'm um, uh, over coffee one day, and I turned it into a slide, and I've been using it ever since. It's very hard that my young colleague, Luis was the just last week showed me this data. Uh, this prediction is correct. He's uh, using the cancer genome um has uh, 18,000 genes that have been sequenced, and the uh, you do see this is a very technical side of what we've talked You do see differential regulation, the downregulated genes are typically the uh, more modern ones, the so, uh, post ones, and the out genes are the ancient ones. And the red and the green give the um, distribution of those. So, just summarizing that, um, this is basically a summary of everything I've said so far. Recessive cancer genes are all the dominant cancer genes. All recessive genes are enriched in processes related to adaptive evolution, like the SLS response in bacteria, very well, same genes. And uh, the yeah. genes were enriched for signal transaction, and those are the ones more likely to be mutated by adaptive evolution. So, all of this is beginning to form a pattern, much more than a story, a quantitative measure of the pattern with predictive value. And that's something that the somatic mutation theory, which has been around for 20 or 30 years, uh, has conspicuously failed to do. It doesn't make any predictions. It's more like a just so story. It tells you after the event why such and such a thing may have happened but it's very hard to get any quantitative prediction out of the standard theory. So I think we're making progress. But in biology, like physics, where you can say, can objects run a than in the night? and the answer is no. they get yes, no answers. In biology, it's always shades of gravity. And so it's not a question of the semi-activation theory is rubbish, and the atomistic theory explains everything. Well. It's always going to be some sort of mixture of the two, and so we just think this is a neglected slump. Now, in the last few minutes that I've got available, I want to talk about the future. Um, <laughs> but that's not me. Um, future biology due to cancer research. Uh, so, uh, in addition to the, uh, the cancer program that I've been involved in at the US, we have another uh, program which is really more to the origin of life, and trying to understand major, Transitions in evolution and the emergence of complexity uh, in a mathematical sense. And uh, in thinking about the future of biology, the question is uh, let's just come back to the cancer story. The, uh, the somatic mutation theory uh, is detected on the fact that there are mutations in, uh, in cancer cells. And it's, it's very tempting to map those mutations using gene sequencing. So, sequencing technology is advanced enormously.
0: And so, this means that I can't in
1: just on uh, sequencing data as the way forward. Uh, but that's the bottomless pit of complexity. No two cells are the same. A tumor is incredibly heterogeneous. Uh, so, if you sequence, if you do single cell sequencing, you just find complete differences. So, they're looking for elusive patterns among petabytes of data on their sequencing by looking at patterns in TBs. Uh, I think you have to stand back again and see the big picture. One person who I think has got it just right is uh, the president of the Royal Society, Paul uh, And a, a very visionary out of in nature a few years ago, and information. So, we need to describe the logic circuits to reveal how information is managed in biology. That is, that we need to think of biology. Uh, as much more like an economics or computing, that the cell has modules inside uh, that process and uh, transmit information. Uh, This information flows around the cell or flows around the organism. Uh, There's information management and control, information storage, information processing, Uh, just like an electronic or computational system. Uh, and so Paul Nurse thinks that um, biology is going to become like that. We're going to talk, we will not worry so much about all the molecular details. We just say, what does this module do? How does it, it wired together with other modules? Uh, what happens when the signal goes in? Um, there's downstream effects in the signaling pathway? How are how these modules connected? Uh, what is the logic? What is the logical circuit? And when something goes wrong, can we fix it by understanding the circuit? Just like if a transistor radio goes wrong, uh, a radio engineer can fix it. There's a famous paper called Why Biologists Can't Fix a Transistor Radio. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, what you need is to understand the principles of, uh, of the electronics to fix the radio. Uh, so, this sort of micro information approach uh, is According to point and I agree with this vision, it's the future. So, um, what we're going to see is that biology general, cancer biology in particular, is going to converge with the field of electronics, logic circuits, modules, and information flow and management. So, these are all areas uh, that are normally on in different parts of the university, but maybe here in the Charles Pratt Center, you've got people from all of those disciplines that can sit down, have a coffee, and talk about it. Now, what do I mean by all this? is it just all words? Well, let me give you just one example, and I'm going to speak a little bit of the details. Eric I, last month, um, put together uh, this uh, circuit diagram, this map. Uh, this is the gene regulatory network that controls the development of the CH. Uh, basically, it's um, a small, relatively small number of modules that connect together and signal each other dot and uh, And uh, if you build a computer model of that network, and the run the model, model uh, then step by step you can recapitulate the uh, stages in the development of the CH. Uh, and so it's been done for a number of uh, systems. One that we've been looking at and at Arizona State University is the cell cycle of the abuse. Um, and here's the circuit diagram for that. So this is a gene regulatory the network, these are genes or the proteins that produce them. Uh, the genes switch each other on, I told you the genes can be on or off genes turn each other on all, and thus form a circuit with feedback loops and control and so on. And so this is something we've been uh, trying to describe. And what we're interested in is the information as it flows around the, this gene regulatory network and the cell cycle of use. Is there anything about it that looks uh, particularly interesting? Are there patterns of information all storage that stand out as different from random uh, And so uh, I have this, this vision. About the future of biology. I think biology is only half done. So the people, when I look what do I see? I see you know, the flesh, I see the morphology, uh, I see the mass of stuff. Um, but if I could looking at you through international eyes, I would see all the bits playing around. I'd see bits being processed in the DNA and the RNA, I'd see uh, bits being processed in the neural system and the endocrine system and so on. You uh, a rise, a of, of information processing flow and control. And I can, you know, just as you can recognize people's faces, I imagine that if we could see in informational space, that we would recognize people had certain motifs that would make them stand out. And we would recognize that those motifs in living organisms, the way information flows around them, would be quite different from what it would be, say, in the sun, sound, or, opportunity or something like that. So I think biological, uh, biology is all about particular ways of information processing, but even a so the evolution is selected the certain, motifs. so that when it comes to this, it's not random. We're very far from random. There's things some selection going on. So selection can work on information management just as it can work on morphology. We can all understand how uh, natural selection can make bigger wings or better eyes or something. That's easy. That's climbing Richard Dawkins' mountains. Oh but there's also a sort of side of the as well, the informational housing problem. Selection can act on the informational properties. We don't see that, we not see it so far. But now this stuff start, is starting to be understood, not least because of the work of these two gentlemen, I are here in the audience and work here at Sydney University. And it's because of like them that I'm here tonight. because they first mentioned uh, that there's been a, um, a workshop, a symposium, a retreat, I can't remember what they call it. Uh, that's been taking place this week on these sorts of topics. And we have made good use of the work that they have done on quantifying, because I say I'm a physicist, I like to see equations, you can write down equations for the way information is managed, the networks, the way it goes around, the networks and so these different motifs. I was talking about uh, relies upon uh, their uh, work in quantifying this information. So that's the future. I want to finish, I keep i to finish, and I promise I will. Uh, Three more minutes, so I'll leave. I, do. Um, I finish with uh, uh, that. I don't know, i That life is a little bit like a computer. So when I look at a computer and I look at Windows, it seems like a mirror. So when I look at life as a physicist, it seems like a mirror. Uh, can you explain it to me? Well, maybe if you really explain life, right? can they explain your computer? Uh, so here's a screenshot of my computer. That's my wife. They're a colorful, very romantic. She uh, can't be here perhaps she's a student teach teaching at ASU. Um, but if I wanted to explain windows, uh, what would I expect to yeah, get? Well, uh, I would go to a computer as well, and then I'd say, ah, oh, it's easy to take a own computer. look inside and we've got some silicon in there, some copper, and some iron, and so on. And whilst we're not completely sure exactly how these substances are doing this windows thing, you know, we're hot on the trail and we think if we just get. Uh, more money, a few more billions per year, we'll drill down the details of all this, we'll figure it out uh, you know sooner or later we'll with the help of some sort of massive computational <laughs> effort. Well, you wouldn't be very satisfied, You know this would not, this would only be half the story of windows. Of course, you need all that stuff to have windows, uh, but you know it's only half the story. It's the hardware stuff. So it's the hardware. <coughs> and enough. the hardware is chemistry, it's the molecules and the chemical reactions. But we also need the software to explain Windows. So what I'm saying is that the future of biology is increasingly going to be a the software of right, life as well as the hardware, uh, the informational aspects. And in cancer, to close the loop, uh, this is a hardware glitch. You don't want this to happen. I have actually my wife's computer in in years uh, ago in, um, in Berkeley, uh, since we've been the target, right? Uh, and, and you get these, uh, these sorts of things uh, happen, and that's a hardware, uh, hardware damage to the computer. Um, this happens, as I 'm saying to biology as well. Here's a, a hardware hitch uh, when uh, some of the cosmic ray causes a, a break in the DNA. Um, and so that's the standard somatic mutation story. And we've seen that that hardware is important. But it's only half the story. The other half is the software side, the informational side. Uh, what is that? Um, well, I bought a new computer a couple of months ago, and um,
0: some of you may be familiar with this little uh,
1: symbol here. Uh, so it used to be long time, but now uh, it's a civil irritating and so And when you see it, you know, the drum on the fingers, Come on, your, fingers, on your um, So I had this problem of, when I touch a mouse, this little thing fits. It never remember it, always fit when I touch a mouse. I'm trying to be kind of. And then I thought, right, I'm not totally stupid. I will look on the internet. So i <laughs> Google this. And it said, um, try reloading the drivers of the maps. So I did it. I downloaded these drivers uh, uh, and uh, re- uh, reloaded them, and as well. So that was a software problem. And the lessons for cancer, then, are the traditional focus, and it's not wrong, but it's just uh, uh, to my emphasis, and uh, it' have been on the heart on mutations, so we're going to have to look into the software aspects as well. I think this is going to be true right across biology. So, uh, if you come back in ten years, you're going to see yes, diagrams like this, more diagrams like that, uh, and that I think is the future. So here's a conclusion side of everything I've been saying. I'll take that message: cancer is deep rooted, widespread, and it's a fundamental phenomenon connected to the space processes of life, it's got both software and hardware aspects, and the software has been downplayed so recently, that we don't need to do a So we should really give up the idea of a general medical skill that will make it go away, uh, and instead we need to think about uh, management, control, and prevention. And I will really finish just by thanking the people who have been this, uh, this is the National Council, Institute, mentioned, and Manzanix uh, is part of the Networks uh, company in California, uh, who are um, paying for our new lab, and for a couple of my colleagues uh, to pursue this research, because they think great promise. Uh, I mentioned also my, my thanks to uh, Jeremy McHale, and this is the meeting that they uh, have uh, set up and are attending this week, very much in the field i will be talking about, and finally, I keep using the term we, and I'm going to leave uh, with the last slide, the list of my uh, principal collaborators. Here it is. And uh, for that, I will stop and take questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Paul. That was extraordinary. Now we, we have. Probably about 10 or 15 minutes for questions. And there are some roving um, microphone holders. And I suggest we put your hands up and I'll try and manage the questions so far as I can. I think, Richard, you've had your hand up. Really enjoyed your lecture. Uh, How do we intervene in the flow of information?
1: Uh, right, um, so we're back to how to fix the, the radio. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think the upshot is that if, that if we understand the logic circuits, and uh, I've given some simple examples, that, uh, and the development like with the CH in the cell cycle, and there are others as well, we can uh, treat these uh, as fairly simple circuits. And then uh, if we discover that something's gone wrong uh, and change the information flow pattern, it might just be a matter of, uh, of repairing a link. You know, the, the thing has got itself rewired, uh, and the wiring is, uh, in effect, pretty fluid. Uh, and the cell itself could re- rewire itself. And so if we understand the principles of that, that it would be much better to have a drug that would rewire that circuit than a drug that would just go in and try and kill all the enemy that affects. So it's got to be a bit more nuanced. Now. Actually, I'm going
0: to leap in there and take... Prerogative. The, the the most effective police force we possess evolved over millions of years. Of course, is the immune system. Yes. And and do we see uh, engaging the immune system more effectively as part of the information control?
1: Right. So uh, immunotherapy is right. the, the play of math when it comes to cancer treatment. I think everybody recognises that. Uh, and. Uh, The immune system, of course, there are two immune systems. There's an old one that goes back to the old of life. And then there's this very cleverly adapted immune system that has evolved over the last 40 million years or so. Um, So that's relatively young, the and the story is as we're telling it. Um, And uh, so um, we've got a particular speculation. And let me just tell you what it is. This may be uh, completely wrong. but uh, people recognize because the uh, immune system, part well, of the role of the immune system is to catch cancer at an early stage and, um, and uh, get rid of those cancer cells. As cancer progresses more, the immune system struggles, not least because tumors uh, create a sort of in you know, a suppressed environment uh, and the immune system can't get at it. Um, and so uh, the, it's been throughout history that when people uh, get an infection, people with cancer get an infection, the cancer can spontaneously disappear. It's been known for hundreds thousands of years, that uh, this can happen, but it was particularly uh, championed by uh, a guy called Kelly uh, called, uh, about 100 years ago. Uh, he was a doctor who noticed that um, uh, in the 19th century, uh, patients were often, well I say often, there were many cases anyway, uh, would recover spontaneously from cancer after getting an infection during surgery. Uh, but in those cases, uh, become a lot more rare. Uh, and he put that down to uh, uh, the sterilization of, uh, of uh, instruments, That Pessy, Louis Pasteur, to So he started deliberately infecting these patients uh, with, um, with bacteria, and was, was claiming on brave steps. And then this went the of leaking, so it was considered barbaric. But now, I think uh, people are saying, well, maybe there was something too cold and maybe these infections were boosting the immune system. I mean, the immune system was going to knock off the cancer as well as the infection. Well, we think that, at least in some cases, uh, it's around the other way, that the disease itself cures the cancer. The cancer is more vulnerable to the disease than the healthy parts of the body. And so we like the idea of deliberately affecting cancer patients, so, within reason, you know. Not small ones, uh, or in both. But, uh,
0: but, you know, it, it can be something uh, pretty aggressive. Uh, so, I think this is a story that we haven't quite completely untangled. So, in the
1: front row, yes. Can you yell or... Somebody's going to run down the stairs. Sure. Well, thank you very much. It was a really fascinating talk. Um, I work in the area of cancer screening, particularly breast prostate lung and thyroid, and that includes two of what we've always thought of as most lethal cancers, breast and lung cancer. But we're finding out you now that with our modern imaging, we can detect cancers that are um, quite different. So we know that there's a diversity of behavior. And that even in those cancers that we thought of as traditionally very aggressive, there's a big spectrum of
0: behavior from very intimate cancers. So we now can pick up cancers that apparently don't progress just sit there and they never cause any trouble, or in fact, even regress. So I'm wondering if your um,
1: what you described as the software component might in some way explain that diversity of behaviour. Uh, so uh, what you're saying is absolutely correct and uh, and something that we've thought a lot about, so I mean it's of course very political, uh, being, uh, the whole screening programme, uh, and the problem about uh, you, you've explained it very well that there's a diversity of cancers, and it's often hard to know in a particular case. Uh, you see a very really early stage lesion, and you go, is this ever going to progress to become a clinical problem. Mostly it won't. How can we tell? So there's a whole of biomarkers. Can we find genetic markers that can say in your case it is going to progress and in your case it isn't? That field is really not going anywhere very fast. Uh, 15,000 papers on biomarkers published, I think. It's been uh, clinically relevant so far. So um, uh, so this is a really, very really difficult thing. So um, the question so was, can this informational approach uh, help? Um, I have no idea, because this is the first time uh, I've been talking about it, uh, since you asked the question. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, generally speaking, if a, if a cancer doesn't, doesn't progress, it's because. Uh, the tissue microenvironment is holding it in you know, equilibrium. And so uh, I've got a slide which I'm uh, anyway. i was thinking of using, which I have used in our various workshops on this, and I mentioned it briefly in passing. Uh, this is less on the informational side, more on the physics uh, side. That the physical microenvironment, the tissue microenvironment, is just as important as the chemical. So you know that you have these chemical signals. But uh, there are physical parameters as well. For example, um, uh, the Young's modulus of the, uh, the uh, surrounding tissue, that's the elasticity. So, a hey, breast cancer, a uh, woman might feel numb, and you tend to think, oh, that's because cancer cells are harder than normal cells. They're not the softer, but the surrounding tissue is harder. So, the way cells behave, that is, the phenotype that they manifest, depends upon. The Young's modulus of the surrounding tissue. It also depends on electric fields, we know that. We have a collaboration game with Tarson University in that very aspect. Uh, And it depends on oxygen tension, that's a story I couldn't get into today, but interests me very much. Uh, Temperature uh, and pressure. The work of Nina Bissell in Berkeley shows that if you uh, apply pressure to a cancer cell, it can restore a normal phenotype, even though the genotype is still cancer. So, there are all of these physical parameters that affect. How the cell will progress. And I have a hunch that uh, a large part of the story here is the quality of the surrounding tissues. Healthy tissues can cope with cancer. Healthy immune system, healthy tissues, these are things that can hold the cancer And check. Uh, think part of the story about what progresses and what doesn't is that. Whether the informational side comes in, don't in, in, in the middle, just Like there's a shark. Sharks apparently don't get cancer. Well, they do. There's a myth. The they're, they're naked mole, but they're,
0: they're very rare, aren't they? Uh, yes. So, yes. what if um, humans uh, evolved by picking other humans that don't get very many cancers? Mm-hmm. Evolved to this cancer
1: evolutionary? What do you, you mean? Germline uh, genetic inheritance? Yes. Um, very good, yes. This is, sort of, this is the right sort of center to discuss it. It's going to a better to discuss on the street outside. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, when we started this whole business arts oncology initiative, um, one of the pleas uh, made by the general, people of Johns Hopkins was why uh, do we spend all this time studying people with cancer and then studying people without cancer? Uh, we're always saying, well, here's a cancer cell, and it's all these defects and so on. But so people then to study healthy tissues and healthy cells and say, you know, relative to normal cells of the same age, it's got these changes. We, so there's very little attention given to healthy cells or healthy people or organisms like the major part of our range, which get uh, yeah, seems of that doesn't get cancer. some cancers that are very rare. You know, in chimpanzees, when common humans, or they vary, as epidemiologists, and they vary from one region of the world to another. All of these things uh, are surely very significant. Um, And one has been very little attention given to it. Uh, As to uh, who's got the right sorts of genes, well, that's a difference. Or we know who has the wrong sorts of genes, because about 5% of carrier cancers are inherited uh, to their defects. um, but that's, that's only about 5%. So we know that there are genes you shouldn't have, but in terms of other genes that you should have, I don't think anybody really is paying
0: uh, much attention to that. Oh, you've got a mic. Um, I've had some interest in um, antigen masking, uh, and there's some laws of of gene or remission uh, that revolve around the immune recognition of tumor service and evidence. Mm-hmm. and then there's a, the mechanism of cancer source survival, relates in some cases to things like uh, polysaccharide coatings uh, or chromatotropin, I think it's called. Um, would there be a possibility, um, for example, that rather than drugs or we could some sort of energy medicine uh, or you know, uh, injected energy to disrupt those and then re- uh, to expose those tumour engines. Well,
1: I'm not sure what you mean by energy, yeah, but there's certainly therapies that uh, have tried to target cancer cells, recognising their surface receptors, uh, binds them, and then deliver, for example, uh, radiation. Package or deliver a nanoparticle of uh, say iron and then put the patient in a microwave out and cook the cancer cells from the inside. Um, that's, you kind know, that that's that's uh, people have been doing really there. Um, and so uh, you know this, this really boils down to what do we do about cancer? Do you try and destroy the cancer cells, or most of the way, or, or do we try and contain cancer cells? So it's either bomb versus or um, uh, at first, thing it seems that what you want to do is destroy the cancer cells well, The difficulty is always, how do you avoid destroying healthy cells as well? And pretty much everything you think of that will attack cancer, will be used to attack cancer, will also attack uh, other cells in the body. Uh, and so, uh, with your energy, whatever that's going to be. Uh, the difficulty is always, the targeting uh, um, because cancer cells Getting differentiated and become more stem-like is so what's better the way they target and also target the stem cells. Uh, so, just uh, so that's just differentiating. So we pull out about of that.
0: So we might take. Oh, a question from the back. We haven't given the people at the back much chance. We'll take a couple more. Two more questions. <laughs>
1: Um, You've mentioned the external threats to uh, cells and the fact that the cancer is response to that threat. Yeah. Um, have you looked at the, the possibility of categorising threats that result in cancers um, and perhaps even rating them? Um, well, we know what those threats are. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not hard to define them. So there are some well-known carcinogens. Uh, like soot, the famous scrap of cancer in chimney sweeps, uh, benzene, uh, asbestos, uh, then uh, a whole bunch of uh, chemicals that will give uh, sometimes very specific chemicals, uh, and then there's radiation. Uh, and then there are more insidious things. Uh, for example, um, and it's good topic to mention here in the task paper, obesity is a risk factor the cancer. So, what's going on there? Uh, well, one aspect of it, I've said several times, that um, you know, healthy tissues are important to, uh, to stabilize cancer. Uh, and obesity uh, is, uh, I mean by definition, a few less non-healthy tissues so that, a, that they would have cancer. So it's another risk factor. Um, alcohol is another one. Uh, um, hypoxia is another one. Uh, which is very great interest to me, one part of the story I didn't have to tell, is that the sativistic theory of cancer predicts that cancer will prefer a low-oxygen environment, just like there wasn't earth one and a half billion years ago. Uh, and uh, he had his case, in there for hundred years, that cancer uh, is comfortable in hypoxic uh, conditions. Uh, but people are suffer uh, for example, their uh, breathing disorders um, that uh, reduce the oxygen, Reduced oxygen in the tissues is a cancer risk as well. So, people are a catalogue of these, some are physical, some are, and I think the electric field have a up of but I'm not going to get into that, it's very useful. Um, so, we, you know, we've got them, but in terms of uh, you know, which is the you know, categorizing them according to the risk uh, factors, I don't know which is the best risk among those. But we see um, and of course, always remember one other thing, sorry, one last word which is that people talk about cancer being treated or caused by certain um, carcinogens and certain risk factors, lifestyle factors, and so on. Uh, remember that all the time the body repairing the damage and it's dealing with the cancers. Uh, and so it could be that, that some things that we don't know are causing massive cancers and the body is just getting rid of them. So what you see is the end result of the damage after the damage repair. Has taken place. And if it's a breakdown of the damage repair pathways yeah. uh, that is the main culprit, then you may be the wrong thing. The thing that's causing the damage isn't the real problem, it's the thing that is affecting the damage repair pathways. And that's been part of my story too.
0: Okay, well, I think what we might do is um, draw the questions in this open forum to a close, invite those of you who would wish to stay to come and join us for a drink. Um, Paul will be around for a little while longer before we whisk him off and uh, to a, a decent dinner,
1: well-earned. a well-earned
0: dinner um, with suitable libation, and I think at, at that note, and uh, I think it's a really very nice um, link back to last year's oration, which was um, Professor Bruce Boytler who won the Nobel Prize for um, innate immunity and in its discoveries. So. We've, we've got a beautiful continuity of story, a so narrative emerging out of this. So <laughs> please, can we all thank um, Professor Davies for a fantastic...